0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for February 2020, volume 58,
1: number two. My name is
0: David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor.
1: Hello, I'm James Cave, editor in chief. So, this month, David, you've uh, written our editorial, Registering Our Interest.
0: Yes, well, for our second editorial of the year, I thought we should look at uh, some of the challenges that conflicts of interest present and the importance of making these public so that people can assess for themselves whether a conflict of interest truly exists. And as a journal, we've implemented a strict policy on conflicts of interest. We publish declarations from authors and our board members, and we don't allow authors of our articles, particularly
1: on therapeutics, to have any conflicts of interest. I, mean, I think some people might ask, you know, is there actually any evidence that conflicts of interests matter. And I think you did look at some evidence around that. That's right. I
0: mean, if we take conflicts of interest as any relationship or activity that could have an impact on what an author writes or what an organisation does, then I think it's important that those are exposed. And we looked at some evidence of the effects of conflicts of interest have on publications. And it shows or it's been shown that having conflicts of interest tends to lead to more positive results or or conclusions than in articles where those don't exist. So I think what it suggests is that it's really important that people can make their own opinions and judgments on whether there is a conflict of interest and what impact that might have.
1: So by positive response you mean that in an article looking at a device where there's a conflict it's more likely that research will demonstrate a positive outcome for that device for example yes the
0: results or the conclusions would be more positive than you'd expect if those didn't exist
1: now I, i i think internationally there have been moves to try and improve on the public awareness of this and i just you know you do cover that a little bit in the editorial what are we doing though in the uk if anything to improve conflict of interest issues
0: That's right. I mean, in the editorial, we highlight the activities in in America where the Sunshine Act gets people to declare payments from commercial organisations. We look at France, where companies have to declare payments to patient support groups or patient organisations. And we touch on the UK's database of declarations or conflicts of interest, which the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industry operate But we highlight the fact that this is a voluntary scheme and that people can withhold their consent to have their declarations made public. So although it's a first step, it isn't comprehensive and you can't be
1: guaranteed to find the information you're looking for. Right, so more to be done perhaps in, in the UK in general. But of course, as always, the DTB will remain completely free of conflicts of interest or if there are conflicts, we'll make sure that our readers are aware of them.
0: Yes, certainly for articles where therapeutics are involved, We won't allow authors to have uh, conflicts of interest. We will continue to publish conflicts of interest statements from authors and our board. But I just think it's time that actually everyone should be able to find anyone's conflicts of interest and make their own judgment rather than having to look
1: hard and then not find them. And in, in fairness, I think the BMJ publishing in particular, this is an area that they're trying very hard to improve and uh, ensure their writers and uh, editorials are all signing up to their conflicts of interest requirements.
0: Yes, as a, as a kind of publishing house, it's very much a direction we're we're looking to, to move in. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Our first main article this month is a review of melatonin used for the treatment of jet lag, and we have recorded a separate podcast, and a link to
1: that is available in the notes. That accompany this podcast
0: but let's quickly review what we discussed in that one
1: yeah just just really briefly this is a, an article on a new indication a new licensed product uh, melatonin for the management of jet lag and we review the research around that not just actually the research around the medicinal use of melatonin but actually all the other lifestyle and other sort of things you might try uh, to reduce the impact of jet lag so that's really what it's all about and it's I think quite an interesting publication a lot of people use military and I know buying it in other countries where it is available over the counter so it will be an interest to people and
0: it's only available here as a prescription only medicine and one yes. of the themes we pick up on is whether it should be prescribed through the NHS or not and what's
1: our view yeah so the bottom line if you like giving all the secrets away is that we don't feel it should be licensed for NHS use because you're not going to use it when you're in the UK most of the time and therefore actually it's not covered by the NHS
0: and overall the evidence for its effectiveness was
1: that it does reduce symptoms total symptoms of jet lag but doesn't get rid of them no and you know I've been thinking about this actually I if a patient came in to see me with a really bad headache and dry and all one actually had a really good party the night before I'd say we well, had a really good night before you know that's that's what happens and if you travel long distances and you get really tired you're going to get jet lag and I'm not sure it really should be an issue for the NHS to cover okay thank
0: you very much our second article this month is an update on nocturnal enuresis so quick headlines what do we cover and what are the key yeah so thank
1: you to community paediatricians for writing this for us I think a lot of has been written about nocturnal enuresis in the past, and we looked. I think there were some really interesting learning points for me: the medical management of it, particularly the fact that enuresis alarms are better than desmopressin. That's the research, and therefore, although I know a lot of GPs immediately go for the medication, you know, lifestyle and enuresis alarms should form part of their management. I was really interested as well. There was a systematic review we cover which shows that sleep apnea is associated with nocturnal enuresis. And in this systematic review, there was a 50% reduction or resolution of nocturnal enuresis in patients following having had their adenoids and tonsils out. I thought it was really interesting. And we don't often ask mums and dads when they bring in their children. Does he snore when they've got nocturnal aneurysis And perhaps we need to be aware that that's an important issue. And the other thing I thought was really interesting was learning difficulties. We really should be offering children with learning difficulties treatment just the same as anyone else. They are effective in this group of uh, children. And it's really important because one of the other things we discuss is the impact that nocturnal aneurysis has on families as a whole.
0: So lots of good stuff about investigations, diagnosis and management and particular. I think we also focus on the drugs that are used.
1: Yeah, exactly. So desmopressin we cover and also oxybutynin and tolteridine, which I don't think we think about very much when managing patients with nocturnal enuresis. And this is um, a really good overview of those, when they should be used and when you should actually consider referring up to specialists. And certainly being aware of the licensed indications for all these products is important. Indeed.
0: Okay, thank you very much. And finally this month, we have a another one in our series of republished case reports. Uh, What was
1: this one about? So this is um, a case report from the USA, uh, statin-induced delayed rhabdomyolysis. And this is a story of a 73-year-old woman Who was admitted to hospital with leg weakness and dark urine, uh, investigated fully and found to have a very high creatinine phosphokinase of 13,000, no evidence of sepsis, kidney failure, thromboembolic disease, malignancy or autoimmune disorder. So the authors felt that although this woman had been on simvastatin for nine years, they felt that it was the simvastatin that triggered this woman's rhabdomyolysis. So the learning point, I suppose, they were suggesting is that, you know, even after nine years, it's possible to develop rhabdomyolysis in patients taking simvastatin. I think my learning points perhaps were slightly different, I have to say, because I did wonder. This woman was also on sertraline and aripiprazole, both of which, um, when I read the summary of product characteristics, can be associated with rhabdomyolysis. And these drugs were started about six months before her admission, So I do wonder whether actually those two drugs might have also been involved or associated with this problem she had. But I think the bottom line is, you know, if you get any situation with rhabdomyolysis, think drugs, think drugs. The other points, I suppose, remember that the risk is dose related and we avoid 80 milligrams of simvastatin in patients as a result of that. There's about a 1% risk, I gather, in that dose. Unfortunately, the authors don't give us any idea of, of the doses used in this woman or what her background is. There's an increased risk of abdominalis in the Asian population. So an interesting, as always, I always find these case reports interesting. Because there's always far more that you can consider than just the bare facts when you start to sort of just pick away at the surface. OK, thank you very much.
0: To read these in any of our articles, please visit our website, dtb.bmj.com where you'll find a link to the latest podcast on our homepage, and also direct links to subscribe to future issues. And if you'd like to leave us a review or a comment, please visit our page on iTunes.